Uh, good to be with you here, church. Um, I'm super grateful to uh, have this privilege of being here, and especially grateful as I stand up here that this pulpit is not patterned like the sinks in the bathroom. Uh, for a guy that's 6'5", uh, having a good, solid pulpit that's not at your knee level is a good thing. Um, yeah, it is a privilege. One of the things I'm so grateful for in Pierce County, uh, you don't know this, this is often a behind-the-scenes thing. We meet once a month with a group of pastors here from several different churches. Stephen's been a big part of uh, making that happen, and it's just good. Be, be thankful that your pastors here really care about unity around the gospel in our region and care about partnering to further uh, God's mission here. I mean, we, we need it. We are in a difficult place, and none of us as churches can do this on our own. We need one another, and so it's a joy to be able to uh, be here and serve you with the word this morning, and uh, grateful especially on such a special Sunday. I mean, not not only uh, is this your mission Sunday, but I, I'm guessing from what I've heard that also many of you, after three weeks in the hot and heavy of the Song of Solomon, are grateful uh, to be able to get up and get a breath of fresh air this morning from a different book, and so uh, that makes my job as a preacher a little bit easier this morning. Uh, a little bit about me, uh, I am one of the pastors and have been for the last 10 years of Summit Christian Fellowship. It's a church just down the road from you on 84th and Vickery in the Summit Waller neighborhood. Um, I am, fun fact about me, also Canadian, um, but my wife has influenced me, so you don't hear it as much in my accent. My wife is actually originally from this area. Uh, we got to meet, actually, in of all places, uh, Western China as missionaries there. And we spent, before being here for the last 10 years, we spent 10 years uh, in the mountains of western China uh, focused on reaching Tibetan people. Now, if you don't know who Tibetan people are, you haven't watched the old Brad Pitt movie, Seven Years in Tibet, you're not into mountaineering or hiking. If any of those things, you might be somewhat familiar with Tibetan people. Tibetan people are a Buddhist people group uh, that live in the mountains around the western portions of China, around the Himalayas. And we had the privilege for 10 years of reaching out to Tibetan uh, people. And by God's grace, uh, honestly, not really due to much of what we did, um, God just worked. Often actually primarily through the house church in China, significant impact. We arrived in 2002 uh, knowing less than 10 known Tibetan believers. And by the time we left in 2012, there were over a hundred with at least one group of those believers meeting together, uh, not just scattered uh, abroad in their different towns and villages, but actually gathering together as a church in one of the cities. And so I know in the last 10 years, that's continued to advance and move forward uh, by God's grace. So God is doing all kinds of things that you don't even know, that you're not even aware of around the world. And so it's a privilege to be able to speak into that this morning. Our, our heart, uh, my wife Ellie and I and our family, very much beats for uh, what this Sunday is about here. The gospel being made known across cultures, across divides, across the globe for the glory of Jesus and the building of his church. We love God's mission. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise, you should be prepared for this, that it's that, that mission that I want to talk about this morning but I want to I talk about it in a somewhat roundabout way by us spending some time together looking at what is probably one of the worst missionary biographies in all of history. And so if you have your Bible, why don't you open up with me to the book of Jonah. If you're not sure where the book of Jonah is in your Bible, it's totally okay. Open up to the middle. Uh, look for where all the, it's almost like the character list for an Amish romance novel. And sandwiched right in between Obadiah and Micah is uh, the book of Jonah. I want to cover this whole book this morning. 
in the 40 or so minutes that we have, which is either a bold move for a guest preacher or it is a foolish move, you can judge by the end. Um, But we need the Lord's help as we dive into this. So let, let me pray that the Lord would help us and meet us through this book. Father, we thank you. We thank you for what you're doing across the globe, that there are places and people that we've never heard of, languages we didn't know existed, uh, places that you are making your grace and your glory known for the praise and the kingdom of your son. I pray this morning that our hearts would be stirred in just a small way toward that kingdom, away from our kingdoms of self and toward what is ultimate, what is primary. Lord, lift our eyes up to you this morning. Through your word we pray, amen. You know, the book of Jonah is an unexpectedly profound story. Now, most of us are, are somewhat familiar with the story of Jonah. What we're less familiar with, I think, is the actual content of the book of Jonah. And that's because for most of us, our exposure to the story of Jonah comes from where? It comes from kids' stories. Right? It comes from things like Veggie Tales. But friends, Jonah actually is, is not just a kid's story. Instead, what, what this story is, is an incredibly deep, profound, complex piece of storytelling. It's a story that's filled with comedy and irony and hyperbole. It, it, it's like at every turn of this story, there's surprises for us as the reader. And this is a story about a lot of things. There's a lot of themes that we see echoed through the book of Jonah, but at its heart, And the reason that I want to walk through this whole story this morning is that at its heart, this is a story about how mission flows from the compassionate heart of God. It's a story about how God's extravagant love propels forward God's unwavering mission in the world. God's love propels his mission. And it's a story that, that, friends, presses us, that actually ends asking us, like when it comes to how we love and how we think about mission, are we on the same page with God? And so what I want to do this morning is just simply walk through this story together, and I want to walk through it in four movements. We're going to see through this story an unexpected mission, an undeserved mercy, an unrestrained message, and then finally, what it all means. Now, if you're one of those neat-nick note-takers and you're like, I didn't catch all of those, I'm going to give them to you as we go along, so feel free to jot them down as we go. So if you've got your Bibles, let's dive in. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And so the story begins, verse 1, it begins with an unexpected mission. An unexpected mission. Right out of the gate, God calls Jonah, who, who, by the way, has already been a prophet in Israel. If you want some afternoon reading, go to 2 Kings chapter 14. You'll find Jonah's story there. Jonah has been this prophet in Israel, and yet here, Jonah calls, God calls Jonah not to go to God's people, but to go to this city of Nineveh. Now question, why Nineveh? What is it that's significant about this city? Well, that's really the question that drives the entire plot line of this book. You see, Nineveh was this city in what is now present-day Mosul in northern Iraq. 
In other words, it was a city outside of Israel, outside the bounds of where God's covenant people lived. In fact, not only that, Nineveh just also so happened to be the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, an empire that at the time was the biggest, baddest empire on the planet. In the ancient world, Assyria was was undoubtedly one of the most violent, imperialistic, brutal, oppressive powers in all of the world. And in Jonah's day, they were on the rise. They'd wiped out entire nations through genocide. Others they had conquered and subjugated. And so now, looming on what was the northeastern border of Israel is, is this constant threat. This is Israel's enemy. And God says to Jonah, their evil has come up before me. Go and preach to them. Wait, what? Go and, go and preach to them? I mean, can you imagine this? This would be like parachuting into Berlin right smack in the middle of World War II. It'd be like landing in, in Kabul, Afghanistan, right in the heart of the city as the, the Taliban is in power. Or dare I say, it might even be like being, being put right in the middle of downtown Seattle as the pride parade goes past. And God's saying, preach to them, for their evil has come up before me. But the interesting thing to notice here is that there, there's actually more implied here than just this message of judgment. You see, the way that the scriptures work, you, you see this over and over again, especially in the prophets, the, the preaching of judgment always implies alongside of it the offer of God's mercy. And so God's commissioning of Jonah is, is actually this extension of God's grace toward this sinful pagan people. I mean, what an unexpected opening to this book. What it shows us right off the bat is that God is concerned, friends, not just with this one single ethnic group that lives along this, this strip on the coast of the Mediterranean. No, th- this God, the God of this book of Jonah, is, is concerned with those outside of Israel. Right? He's concerned with the nations. You know, the Bible shows us that. If you know the Bible story, the Bible shows us that almost right off the bat in Genesis chapter 12. If you know the story, God calls Abraham and begins to form this nation. And God gives Abraham this mission. Do you remember it? God, God gives Abraham in many ways this commissioning. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you would what? Anybody know the story? So that you would be a blessing. In other words, God's intention for this people that he's calling to himself is not that they would be just the end users of God's blessing, that they'd somehow sponge that blessing up to themselves, but that they would instead be be squeezed to pour that blessing out on the world around them, that they would be conduits of God's grace in the world. Now, I don't have time this morning. I'm trying to keep within 40 minutes. I don't have time to walk you through every step along the way, but there is a biblical trajectory, friends, from Genesis 12 all the way to Matthew 28. To these words, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The same commission that was given to Abraham that was carried forward by the very people of Israel as a light to the nations, the same commission that we see here in Jonah, friends, is is our commission that we 
also, like sponges, would receive the grace of God and, and pour it out on a world around us, that we would be swept up into God's mission. God's, God is making his name known through his people. And the church here exists, the chapel here exists for the purpose of that cosmic mission. And it's that mission in, in its own unique way at this point in redemptive history. It's that mission that Jonah here is being called into. In other words, Jonah is being invited really to to step into something much greater and much grander than himself. He's being invited to align his life and priorities and his plans with what God is doing in the world. That's why it's such a shock when we read verse 3. But Jonah rose not to go to Nineveh, but to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Most missionary biographies that I've read, I haven't read all of them, but I've read a lot of them, most of them don't start with the main character running in the opposite direction. But that's exactly what Jonah does. You see, Nineveh was 500 miles to the northeast of Israel, Tarshish, as, as far as we know, our best guess is that it was somewhere on the, the southwestern coast of Spain, somewhere near the, the Straits of Gibraltar. And so, in essence, what Jonah is doing is he's, he's running in the exact opposite direction to the furthest location in the known world at the time from where God has called him to go. You tracking with me? And the crazy thing is that it's not just that Jonah's running from what God has called him to. The way that the author describes it here, it's like he's trying to run away from God himself. If you've got your Bible open, look at verse 3. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish again for the second time here, away from the presence of the Lord. I mean, think about this, though. We're... we're this is Jonah. This is the prophet of Israel. This guy is like first-team varsity, all-state Israelite. And so you know that he knows the words of Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Like us as the reader, we're going this. Jonah, you know this. You, you can't flee from the presence of God, and yet, yet he tries to, doesn't he? Why? Why? Well, that's the question that drives the entire plot. It's about to get answered. We're going to get to it here in chapter 4. But let me at least right now answer that question this way. It's not that Jonah is just trying to disconnect from God in a physical sense. Jonah is disconnecting from God relationally. In fact, the author lets us in a little bit on Jonah's spiritual state, just in the language that he uses. He says, he went down to Joppa and found a ship and went down into it, away from the presence of the Lord. Why are there all these prepositions of movement downward and away? It's because Jonah, in many ways, is in this state of spiritual freefall. I mean, here's this guy who on the outside has looked the religious part. He's been the faithful Israelite. He's got all of the right theology in his head. And yet, from this moment on, there is no one in this story who's further away from God. And man, this is where, friends, this story just punches us in the gut. Because this can so easily be us. 
Jonah, in many ways, represents the people of God. You see, this isn't just a story about missionaries or about pastors or about full-time Christian workers. This is a story about you. It's a story about me. It's a story about every one of us. There's something here, at the very least at this moment in time, there's something here in Jonah's idea of what his life should look like. Jonah's vision for the good life, his priorities, there's something about those things that don't include going to Nineveh. And so what happens is that his his comfort, his, his own security, his own identity, right, those things begin to take priority over what God has actually called him to. And in the end, the issue isn't just that Jonah is disobeying God's command here. The issue is that Jonah is increasingly disconnected from God's heart. There's something about what God wants and what Jonah wants that are at odds with each other. But you know the thing is, some of you here know this this morning from experience. Here's the thing. No matter how hard you run, you can never outrun God. And so what do we see in verse 4? We we begin to see the second movement of this story. We begin to see an undeserved mercy. An undeserved mercy. Verse 4. Verse 4 begins with three of my favorite words in this entire story. But the Lord. But the Lord. God extends his mercy to Jonah, but it's it's this severe mercy. Read it with me. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. Side note, isn't it ironic that Jonah has run away from proclaiming God's message to this sinful pagan city, and yet he's ended up on this boat full of sinful pagan sailors? God's got a sense of humor, doesn't he? And they're in the middle of this storm, and this storm is so bad that they start to throw the cargo into the sea. But all of this time, where's Jonah? Verse 5, Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. You know, this isn't just Jonah in peace and tranquility sleeping. Jonah here is in a spiritual fog. There's this spiritual apathy that started to build in him. And so the captain, who's again, ironically, the captain here is more spiritually awake than even Jonah is. And the captain comes to him, verse 6, and says to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Follow along as I read. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, tell us on whose account has this evil come up upon us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, and notice this, it's so interesting here what question Jonah decides to answer first of all of these. See, what is preeminent in Jonah's mind, what's primary in his identity, leads the conversation for him. He answers this way, I am a Hebrew. 
See, above all else, Jonah is saying, what, what I identify with is my own people and my own nation and my own culture and my own language group. That's what I want to hold most tight. It's the very thing that we're going to see causing problems for Jonah as this story goes along. I am a Hebrew, he says, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. And we're meant to laugh at that moment because there's nothing in his behavior that shows it. Who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And so what happens, verse 11 Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Question, is this a moment of awakening for Jonah? Has Jonah finally kind of gotten out of himself in the story No, in fact, this is Jonah's final desperate act of rebellion. He says, God, I would rather die, essentially, than do what it is that you're asking me to do. Verse verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. Ha, these sailors clearly care more about Jonah than he cares about them. But they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And then we hear what is the first prayer in this entire book. And it comes on the lips, not of Israel's prophet, but of these polytheistic Phoenician sailors. Verse 14. Therefore they they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They even refer to God by his covenant name, Yahweh. And so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to him and made vows. This is crazy. Thank you for bearing with the whole reading of the story. But this story is crazy. I mean, here's this prophet in And after everything that Jonah has done, in spite of his running away and his rebelling against God's mission, in in spite of his total ineptitude as the prophet of God, what does God do? He still shows his mercy to this pagan crew. And he's about to show it to someone else who's equally undeserving in this story. He's about to show it to Jonah again. God's undeserved mercy is all over this story. Verse 17, the most well-known part of the story, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And while he was there, Jonah has this almost conversion-like experience. I'm not going to read the entire song that he composes, but something begins to happen inside of Jonah. He experiences God's grace for himself, and there's this overwhelming gratitude that Jonah begins to feel. But the, the question we're left with at the end of it is, is this, will God's mercy actually change him? Will God's mercy actually change him? Will Jonah actually be transformed by the grace that God has given to him? Will will he become a a conduit that 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 grace flows through to others, or, or will he just simply be this end user 
of that grace of God. Well, we don't have to wait long to see. You see the fish vomits Jonah up, which, by the way, is a little hint at how distasteful this character is, that he even gives the the fish indigestion. And then chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. You know, it's a testament to God's undeserved mercy that Jonah gets a second chance. How many of you this morning are grateful for God's second chances? Amen, we need them. We need his grace. And God's grace is just pouring onto every part of this story. It feels like everyone everywhere is just getting saved, and then that salvation comes to a climax in chapter 3 through an unrestrained message. And so this is the third movement of the story, an unrestrained message. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, word for word, by the way, this is almost the, this is almost the identical commission that God gives to Jonah in chapter 1, verse 1. But Jonah's response this time is a little bit different, isn't it? Look at verse 3. So Jonah arose and, and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now remember this place, Nineveh, right? This city is the heart of one of the most brutal, violent empires in history. It's this this city that threatens the very existence of God's own people. And yet God's extending his mercy to this pagan city in the same way that he's extended his mercy to the main character of the story for the last two chapters. There's a parallel that we're meant to see here. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and then he preaches what might be the worst sermon in the entire Bible. In Hebrew, it's five words long. In English, it's eight words. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. No mention of God, no mention of his grace and kindness, no mention of the mercy that he's received from him, just a straight message of judgment. Anybody been out there and seen those guys that stand on the street corner with the banner, right, the end is near? That's Jonah here. Last summer, our, our family went up to Seattle for a Mariners game. We, just, we happened to catch the Blue Jays game, which was awesome to be the one Canadian in the crowd, not cheering for the Blue Jays, but cheering for the Mariners. But we went up to the game, we brought our girls with us, and I remember going into the game, Seattle is crazy at the best of times, but I remember going into the game, and there were these two guys standing outside of T-Mobile Park on loudspeakers blaring, and you could barely make out what they were saying, but as I stopped and listened, what they were just reciting over and over again with no context was verse after verse after verse of God's judgment in the scriptures. Their message was this, repent or burn. And I remember looking at my girls who had never seen something like this before. And I just mouthed to them, Jonah. <laughs> but the thing is that their message has even more, had even more content than Jonah's message. I mean, Jonah doesn't mention any opportunity here for turning. It's just this, this straight, naked message of judgment. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And yet, again, it's like a surprise at every turn. Surprise, surprise. What does God do with that message? He uses it. 
In fact, the, the response of the Ninevites comes so quickly that as you're reading through it, it's almost like you, you would just miss what happens here, verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. Church, can I just say what a tremendous encouragement this is right here? I mean, this, this is the worst gospel presentation. There's, there's almost no content to it, and yet God uses it to convert these pagans. You know, it's a reminder for us that the power of mission is not in us as witnesses. The power is in God and in his word. Amen? Meaning that God uses our stumbling, inadequate, inarticulate proclamation to do what only he can do, to save people. I remember there were moments uh, in our first few years in China, actually if I'm honest, I'm going to say not just our first few years, for our entire 10 years in China, there were a ton of moments where you just felt inadequate. Chinese is one of the hardest languages on the planet. After learning Chinese, we had to learn Tibetan, which is a totally unrelated language, a, a completely different language group, and for 10 years, you feel like a third grader. It's hard. And, and add to that, at least with Tibetan, you, you are operating in a language that doesn't even have a proper word for God. It's not even a concept in the Buddhist worldview. And everything about the Bible, the biblical story, it feels like it makes no sense to a Buddhist. I mean, to, to kill a mosquito in Tibetan Buddhism is one of the greatest sins because that little annoying bug might be your grandma. You're meant to laugh. It's worth laughing. And so imagine trying to make, help someone make sense of a Bible where the entire first two-thirds of it are filled with the God-ordained slaughter of thousands upon thousands of animals. Like, how do you do that? Friends, you have to believe that the power is not in you as a witness, but in the power of the word itself. And praise God, that is where the power is. You know, you read through the book of Acts, and there's this reoccurring phrase over and over again. You read this, and the word of the Lord multiplied, and the word of the Lord multiplied, and the word of the Lord multiplied. It's like the word itself is this living entity that has power to transform, that has power to, to do something. And what, did, what an encouragement for us. Do you know what that means? What it means is that you could walk out the door this afternoon, run into someone at the grocery store, have a conversation with your neighbor while you're mowing the lawn together, and totally botch sharing the gospel with them. And God can still do something. They believed God. They believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. In ancient cultures, that was a symbolic way of saying that you meant business with God. It was a sign of repentance. And the word of the Lord reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in 
ashes. He gets down to this lowest place in the dust. He goes to the place of of death in essence. This is such a picture, friends, of what repentance is. If you're wondering what it means to come to God, what it means to trust in him, what it means to lay your life down, that the king is such a great example of that, right? This is what repentance looks like. Us stepping off the throne, taking off our emblems of power, and in essence coming to this place of dying to ourselves. We, We see that modeled here. And there's this decree issued throughout Nineveh, let neither men nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast, it's crazy that it's the men and the cows that get covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. There's this wholesale repentance. And then God acts, verse 10, and when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. It's this climactic moment, and us as readers, you know what we're meant to do? We're meant to raise our hands up in the air and go, amen, yay! God saved this pagan, sinful, power-hungry city. They, they, They fall on their face. And they turn away from all of their oppression and their violence and their injustice. And as readers, it's like we, 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 we're meant to come to the end of chapter 3 and there's this feeling that we have. If you're a movie buff at all, you feel this reality. It's like at this moment, at the end of chapter 3, it's a, it's a storybook Hollywood ending. It's, it's like the lights should dim and the credits should begin to roll and we all feel good about ourselves. And that's actually how... Most children's stories tell it. This particular one right here, Jonah and the giant fish. Here are the last two pages. Jonah told the people, stop doing bad things. They listened to Jonah. God forgave Jonah. God forgave the people. He loves all his people. But is that how the story ends? Actually, no. I mean, that would be very neat and tidy and cleaned up, wouldn't it? But it would also miss what is the most important point of the entire story. It would miss what all of this means. And so I want to end here. It's it's the fourth and, I think, the most important movement, what it all means. What it all means you know, as we end chapter 3, right, all of us felt it. You all give a hearty amen, at least in your spirit, right, in your heart. Amen, this is so good. We're all cheering. Except one person. Who is it that's not cheering? It's Jonah. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. Literally, the author here says it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and it burned to him. Jonah is ticked. The question is, why? Well, we see it in what he prays here. In fact, it's interesting. This is only the second time in this story that Jonah prays. Both these prayers come in response to God's salvation. Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 in response to God saving him. And Jonah's prayer in chapter 4 to God saving Nineveh. And the difference between those two prayers is stark. 
verse 2. O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a God, you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew it. That verse that we read this morning, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, this statement of the very character and nature of God revealed to Israel, Jonah goes, I knew you were like this. I knew you were a God full of love and grace, and that meant that you would forgive these wretched people. Why is Jonah so angry? He's angry because God's mercy and grace have been extended not just to him, not just to his own people, but to the very people that Jonah despises. These outsiders, these enemies of God, these threats to the prosperity and the security of God's covenant people, they're, they're now experiencing some taste of God's covenant blessings. And in, in this over-the-top way, I mean, it destroys Jonah. Right? Look at what he says, therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And then the Lord asks him this question, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? It's a question that's going to come up again in just a few verses. And Jonah goes outside of the city. He sits to the east of the city. He makes a booth for himself. He, he sits under it in the shade. The scripture says till he should see what would become of this city. He's hoping in some way that maybe they, maybe they mess up here. Right? Maybe they, they repent of their repentance. Maybe they, they turn back to their old ways and God will smite those suckers down. But God doesn't. Instead, here's what God does. Now the Lord appointed a plant. Remember this language, right? God already appointed some things in this story. God appointed what? He appointed a storm. He appointed a whale. And now he appointed a plant. And he made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was what? Exceedingly glad. (laughs) What a plant. Right? He's so happy. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said again, it is better for me to die than to live. And then God asked Jonah again, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. What in the world, friends, is going on here? God's trying to expose something here in Jonah's heart. And and through it, in the process, I think he's trying to expose something in our own hearts as well. You know, it's interesting, but in many ways, Jonah's concern over this plan, it's like the first thing in this entire story that Jonah has actually been concerned for outside of himself, and the only reason that he's concerned for it is what? Is that it serves him. Pastor Stephen mentioned in his prayer this tendency that all of us have toward a type of spiritual narcissism, towards a type of spiritual self-centeredness, and this is where Jonah's at. But what Jonah can't see, and us as readers, we we see this clear as day, is that there's this deep self-righteousness within Jonah. Jonah feels entitled to the kindness and the generosity and the mercy of God, and yet he's, he's totally uninterested in giving that away to anyone else. 
In fact, he, he finds a reason that there's nobody else but him and his people deserving of that kindness and grace. And can I just say, this is incredibly convicting for us. You see, there's this way. This has always been the tendency of God's people, friends. There's this way that we can so easily become this, this holy huddle where we, we soak in, we, we sponge in the blessings of God for ourselves. We, we hoard those blessings and then set the walls up around us from everyone else. Where we forget or we just plain disobey the call that God has on us as his people to be a conduit of his grace and blessing into a needy, desperate, and yes, sinful world. And sure, sometimes, like, when we send other people and send money over there to, to reach those far-off people, right? when we don't have to extend ourselves outside of our own security and comfort zone, like that feels wonderful to reach those precious pagans over there where I don't have to touch them. What's much harder, though, is to reach those pagans that live across the street from us, that exist across the political aisle from us, that sit across the cubicle from us. And yet, the call is the same. Let, let me tell you this morning that you cannot reach people with the good news of the gospel that you already in your heart despise. And as this book ends, it, it ends, in fact, it's one of only two books in the Bible that ends with a question. Look down at verse 10. And the Lord said, Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Weird that the cattle come back in here. But the question that God's asking at the end of this story is, is essentially this. It's the question that he's asking you this morning. Is your heart as big as God's? Is your heart as big as God's? Now, how big is God's heart? Well, you know, just a few hundred years after Jonah sat on this hillside waiting for the destruction of Nineveh, there was another prophet of God who stood on another hillside overlooking another city. Jesus, in Luke's gospel, in an almost Jonah-like way, he, he stands overlooking not a pagan city, but what city? The city of Jerusalem, a city that is equally deserving of destruction. And yet Jesus didn't sit there just waiting for that destruction to come. No, what does Jesus do as he stands looking out over that city? He laments. And just a few days after that moment, Jesus doesn't just lament. He, he doesn't just wait on that hillside. He actually goes out to another hillside outside of that city. And, and this time he ends up nailed to a brutal, bloody Roman cross. On that cross, Jesus doesn't wait, waiting for God's judgment. What does he do? He takes God's judgment on himself. You want to know how big God's heart is? Look at the cross. Look at the one who came and was what Jonah should have been. 
It's only us seeing and grasping that extravagant love of God that can propel us into God's mission in the world. You see that grace poured out at the cross. It's not just meant to come to us. It's meant, friends, to go through us out into the world. You see, if we, if we only get the gospel as it relates to us, we have not fully gotten the gospel. Because the gospel is not meant to end with us. It's meant to go out through us. You know, right now on planet Earth, according to most statistics, there's about 7,000 unreached people in the world. Unreached people groups, meaning these are language groups that have no church presence around them, no contact with any group of believing Christians. Friends, the, the nations need the gospel. The question for us is, is, will we be so focused on ourselves and hoarding God's blessing that we fail to see the need out there? There's a need to give and to pray and to go. And let me tell you, that, that is not always glorious. You will not always like the people that God has called you to love with his grace. And that's just as true for us right here. You know, increasingly the nations are coming here. The nations are becoming our our next door neighbors. In western Washington right now, the, the, the number of unreached people groups that are now in this window right here that we have opportunities as the church to reach out to, to reach across to, are, are tremendous. Is our heart as big as God's heart? You know, in this place where we are increasingly surrounded by pride flags and by pro-choice propaganda and a, a million other symbols of sin where people don't know their right hand from their left hand, where people very much feel like Nineveh. The question for us is, are we moving toward Nineveh or are we running away? Do you have God's heart? That's the question that Jonah leaves us with this morning, and it's the question that I want to leave you with this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word through the prophet Jonah. Lord, would you convict us? Lord, would you move us away from our tendencies toward safety and comfort and self, and would you compel us by the love that Christ has shown to us to to turn outward to others, to to not be end users of your blessings and your grace, but to be conduits of it for a world in desperate need. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.